We'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. And I've titled this message, The Christian's Faith in the Furnace. As we look at this, I think it will become evident why. 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14. We have discussed, as we have worked through this great epistle of the Apostle Peter, the theme of suffering. And we've seen time and time again that Peter has this pastoral desire to equip Christians to suffer well. Why were the Christians in the first century suffering? Well, there were several reasons, misunderstandings, and rumors about what they did behind closed doors led many to surmise that Christians were cannibalistic, incestual, rebel-rousers. After all, they, they talked about eating the, blood, the flesh and drinking the blood during communion. They, and they referred to each other as brother and sister, and, and they, they went on and on about how they loved one another. And... And then they go and and call this guy named Jesus Lord when there's already a Lord uh, sitting on a throne in Rome. And this Lord had given them spiritual life and there was a propensity for new converts upon discovering the magnitude and the height and the depth of their spiritual position in Jesus Christ to might think that they could get away with neglecting their earthly life. A a citizen might not respect the authority of Lord Caesar quite as much. A a newly converted Christian servant might think, eh, he doesn't need to listen to his master quite so much. And a newly converted Christian spouse might neglect or even decide to leave their still unbelieving husband or wife. Now, all these rumors and misunderstandings promulgated this this slanderous misconception that Christians were these perverted, arrogant, unruly, meddling anarchists who were trying to undermine society. The Christians are these people trying to turn the world upside down, and they're not going to be content until they've evangelized everybody and made everybody one of them. That's, that's, the, that's the, the, the rumor. That's the misconception. So Peter, as he's alluded to already, Christians were slandered. Christians were reviled and suspected of wrongdoing, and more and more they were being treated accordingly. And so Peter is writing to Christians who are in the midst of that with the intent that, that they and we might stand firm and suffer well as a Christian for the name of Jesus Christ. And I am convinced that we need to hear what Peter has to say in this text because, A, suffering for the name of Christ is on our doorstep. If, you don't, if you're not aware of that, read a newspaper. It, it, it's not very popular to voice Christian opinions anymore. B, the bulk of what is passed around for Christian teaching, namely the prosperity uh, gospel, 
won't prepare you to suffer well. So we need to hear what Peter has to say here. And he gives us four things that our faith ought to be doing when the heat is on. Four things that our faith ought to be producing when we are in the furnace. In verse 12, we will see that we are to expect suffering. In verse 13 and 14, Peter will tell us to exult, to rejoice in our suffering. In verse 15 to 18, we are to evaluate our suffering. And then in verse 19, we are to entrust our suffering to God. Let's read what he says in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, a great way to start off a message, huh? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God, of the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Great words. So we see the first the first key that we ought to be doing in suffering is to expect it. Expect it. Expect suffering. He he begins Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. And, and, and I can't even go one word without getting into this text before a theology hits me square in the face. He, 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 what does he address the church? What does he address believers as? Beloved, as those who are loved. And that is so good. Because he's reminding us by that one word that hard circumstances do not ward off the love of the brethren, in this case, Peter, and especially hardship and hard circumstances and being in trials does not, does not mitigate the love of God in our lives. Paul, another apostle, says in Romans 8, he asks rhetorically, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will, will tribulation separate us? Will distress, persecution Famine, peril, sword, implied answer, no. 
And then he, he, he goes on in verse 38. He is convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, no created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, it's very good to be loved of God, especially when you're in trial, especially when you're in hardship. And a wrong view of suffering, I'm convinced, was something that Peter wanted to counter. A wrong view of suffering would, would, would cause us to think that when we're suffering, God is angry with, with us. Isn't that what Job's friends counseled him? In the Old Testament, isn't that what even the, even the disciples thought about the man born blind in John 9? Hey, Jesus, this guy born blind, was it his sin or was, whose sin was it that made God strike him blind? Uh, a wrong view of suffering, a poor view of suffering will cause us to think that. So, again, just one word, beloved, the, theology in one word. Let, 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 me, let me repeat what, Paul, what Peter says. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Now, we have to ask, what's, what's this fiery ordeal? And I have to confess, Peter con- frustrates me a little bit, as well as uh, many commentators and exegetes, because he's, he's, he's vague here. And answering this question depends on when Peter wrote the letter. If he wrote before the summer of 64 A.D., which I believe he did, then this fiery ordeal is the slander and the reviling that the pagan community is throwing at the Christians. That that is really what Peter has addressed thus far in the epistle. And with few exceptions, notably in Acts 7, we have Stephen. In Acts 12, we have uh, the Apostle John, not not the fourth gospel, John. There were several Johns in the New Testament, which makes that a little frustrating at times. But one of the Johns uh, was executed by Herod in Acts 12, notably both by Jews, not by the pagan authorities. So by, by this point, by the early 60s, Christians, they're being slandered and reviled and suspected of a, of a great many things, but they're they're not quite living in fear for their lives from their neighbors on on an empire-wide scale, at least not yet. And I say not yet because what happened in uh, the summer of 64 AD contributed to, to changing that a little bit. Anybody know what happened 64 AD? Rome burned while Nero fiddled. As the saying goes, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Nero, Emperor Nero, uh, had this consuming lust to build. And he was in a, a frustrating position because he wants to build and build and build, but he ran out of space to build things. And so the only way to quench his appetite is to remove the things that already were so that he could build more. And so he, rumor has it, uh, and it's very it's most likely that he start, had this fire started and while he was in the tower of Mycenaeus uh, playing on his fiddle at just basking in the glow of the flames. 
Now, public speculation began to incriminate Nero. And by the way, the fire was really bad. Rome, the Roman buildings were primarily constructed of wood. You know, this is not in Palestine where everything, even the doghouse, is made out of stone and rock. In, 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 in Italy, there is plenty of wood. So buildings are made with wood. Buildings are made very closely together. The, the, anyone ever been to Europe? They make the streets narrow. So fire spread quickly. The fire was bad. And so public speculation began to incriminate Nero. And so Nero decides being suspected of this isn't what he wants, and so he needs to find a scapegoat. And guess what? He found one. He found a good one in the Christians. After all, they're already being suspected of being insurrectionists. They're already thought to be rebels. And they, they go on and on about how the world is going to be judged by fire, so, of course, it was the Christians. So, if, if Peter is writing this letter after Rome burned, then the Christian sufferings would not only include being slandered and reviled, but it would also include free license to be openly persecuted by their neighbors, in addition to being charged, arrested, beaten, and imprisoned, and executed by the power of the state, and that that phrase fiery ordeal kind of becomes a little more vivid because do, do, does anybody know what, what one of Nero's little, um, uh, um, what he did with Christians who were arrested? He had them rolled in pitch and used as human torches for his candlelight parties, for his garden parties. So that, that phrase fiery ordeal takes on a little more significant meaning if this is after 64 AD. We can't be sure, so I wanted to cover both sides of the debate. So this, whatever the fiery ordeal was, we do know it came as a surprise to the early church. It, it was something that they weren't expecting because they did nothing to deserve it. And Peter says, do not be surprised. If he were speaking in Yoda talk, he would say, be surprised not. Don't be surprised. That, that word, it's not just this momentary, oh, I didn't, oh, that, was, that surprised me. This is, this is speaking of marveling. This is speaking of being astonished. This is speaking of being amazed and wondering, and you can't get over the fact that this thing happened and it's keeping you up at night. It, it is this... It is this duration of frustration. And Peter says, don't be, don't be perplexed. Don't be amazed. Don't let this derail you that this ordeal is in your midst. Don't let the fact that Christians will suffer in this life when they are innocent of any wrongdoing, don't let that derail you. As if, he says, as if, some strange thing were happening to you, as if it were to just happen. I don't know how this happened. Peter says, don't, don't look at your ordeal like that. As if God's people have never suffered in history, right? As if it just happened or fell by chance. We, we rest in the sovereignty of God, right? We know that not even a sparrow 
says multiple gospels. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of God. Neither does the fiery ordeal of these Christians escape the foreknowledge and the sovereignty and the purposes of God Almighty. Things like this don't just happen. They come upon you, they come upon Christians for a purpose, and that is to test you. Now, listen, church, because this is important. I don't want you to I don't want you to miss this. God does not test the Christian because he doesn't know what the Christian's gonna do and he wants to find out. The Bible is chock full of examples of God saying what people will do. He knows what's in their heart. He knows what's in their mind. He knows what they're going to do, whether it's five minutes down the road, an hour down the road, the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year, a hundred years down the road. God knows what is in us. Psalm 139.3, David says, you, you scrutinize, you, you discern my path and my lying down, and you are, you are familiar and you are intimately acquainted with Not just some of my ways, not just most of my ways. What does he say? All of my ways. God knows you better than you know you. And he knows the end from the beginning. So his testing isn't for him. Who is it for? It's for you. And my testing is for me. Now, this... This idea comes from, from two words in this sentence, test, and the word fiery ordeal. In the Greek, it's one word. And they're both uh, metallurgy words. They're both, they both have to do with metal working. Uh, we'll do f- the ordeal first. This is, uh, and this is why I titled the sermon, The Christian's Faith in the Furnace, because the fiery ordeal has the idea of that smelting furnace. And that's a device where a metalsmith or a blacksmith takes this raw, unprocessed ore and he he puts it in the heat to incredibly hot temperatures. I'm sure if the ore could speak, it would not enjoy being in temperatures that high. Hence, it's a fiery ordeal for the ore. And in in that heat, this metal becomes, I mean, think about it, metal becoming liquid. Science blows me away. That's what happens. And in this molten liquid, uh, different um, particles separate, and the dross, the the bits of the metal that you don't want, begin to float to the top. And they can be scooped. uh, I don't presumably with a metal spoon, not not with your hand. That would hurt. But the, the 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 things you don't want in the metal are scooped out and removed. And what do you get afterwards? You have a better metal. You have a refined metal. You have a more endurable metal. It's stronger. It's better. It's higher quality. It's more valuable. It's better. That's the metal you want. And so it's good for the metal to be to be put through that ordeal. And then, and then he says uh, that it comes upon you for your testing. And this is a word. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this word before. Test. Uh, trial. It, it can mean temptation. It can mean incitement uh, 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 to be lured to do something 
bad, but it, it, it also refers to the process of assessing, proving, finding out the quality or the nature of, of something or someone. And, you know, you may, you know, I, growing up, I was told as I was, as I was instructed to drive a car, always test the brakes. Make sure the brakes are in working order. You, in the morning, you may open the fridge and, you know, you may sniff the milk to test it before you pour it over your cereal. You, you want to discern what is the quality of this thing you're about to put in your body. A supervisor may want to uh, test several potential candidates to see if they have the, what it takes to do the, um, to do the, the job that they're vying for. So suffering for Christ proves that we are his. It, and furthermore, not just suffering for Christ, but suffering affirms, suffering in, uh, affirms that we are his. And church, I, I have to confess to you, isn't it? It is so good to me. It is so comforting for me in the times when I'm suffering to be reminded of who I belong to. Isn't it good to see in ourselves this objective, undeniable, organic faith manifesting itself through endurance and knowing for sure your faith is real. That comforts me. I hope it comforts you when that happens. That's why James says in James 1, 2 through 3, to consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. And so it's good for the Christian to suffer. God wills for the Christian to suffer. So Peter says, expect it. Expect it. And then he says in verse 13 to 14, he says, exult in suffering. Don't just, ex- don't just expect it, but also exult in it. Rejoice. Rejoice exceedingly in your suffering. Whatever the severity of your suffering may be, exult in it. Rejoice in it and keep on rejoicing in it. And keep rejoicing and don't stop. Look for joy in each and every trial that we are given. Isn't isn't this tough? I mean, to those who have no hope, to those who are not looking to Jesus Christ, and to those who have no hope in a resurrection and a life to come, isn't this absolute foolishness? Oh, look at me. I'm being persecuted. I'm being persecuted. Praise the Lord. You you would think, you you, you wouldn't want to drink whatever it is that that person ordered at Starbucks. You'd think that they are screw loose. But James says, count it, not just, don't, don't just count some of it joy. Don't just count most of it joy. Count all of it joy. Look for joy in every suffering that you get for the name of Christ. 
Now, notice here, Peter does, he doesn't just call your, your suffering hardship. He doesn't call it trial, or, and he doesn't use the, the, the word he used earlier, ordeal. What, does he, uh, what synonym does he provide for your, for your ordeal here in verse 13? You share the what? You share the sufferings of Christ. Why does he do that? I mean, we looked at this, I think, a week or two ago when we were, when we were looking at Colossians, where Paul says uh, in 124 that he, he is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Are there a, did, did, were there some sufferings that Christ somehow missed? I mean, what do, what do we do with that? Well, we've studied the afflictions and the sufferings of Christ, and we've seen them to be expiatory. That, that means... Uh, based on the route to expire, meaning to stop or to, 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 to come to an end. So when Christ's sufferings were expiatory, that means that he put an end to sin. Sin is dealt with. As far as your guilt and your shame and your condemnation, it's, it's, it's done. It's gone. So Christ's sufferings, in, in, in view of atoning for us, Christ's sufferings were expiatory. That is something he did by himself with the help of no man. No one partook. No one shared those sufferings. Hebrews 7.27 says, He once for all put away the sins uh, of his people when he offered up himself. And in 9.26, Now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, himself, himself. Both of those verses emphatically point out this is something he did with the help of no one else. And Peter has already said back in chapter 224, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. Your sins, his body, his death, your healing. His suffering was expiatory. So what, whatever this means, it, sharing in the sufferings of Christ cannot mean that we assist Christ in any way with his sin bearing. Because that's something he's already done. It's a finished work. It doesn't need to be repeated. That's, as a side note, that's, that's one of the chief issues that the reformers had with the Roman Catholic Mass and the idea that that the offering of Christ is something that needs to be repeated and offered again. Beloved, settle in your hearts that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient for all sin of all sinners of all time. What this does mean, what this sharing in the sufferings of Christ does mean is that we, we associate with his sufferings like as we suffer like he did, the sufferings that we share are not expiatory, but we share in his sufferings as they were exemplary. Does that make sense? R.C.H. Lenski comments, we fellowship Christ's sufferings when we suffer for his name's sake, when the hatred that struck him strikes us because of him. That's what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. And Peter says, when that happens, don't, don't, 
marvel. Don't be surprised. Don't want to derail you. Rather, rejoice in that. And he says, keep on rejoicing in that. Isn't that tough? Keep on rejoicing. Exult in your suffering. Again, to those who have no hope, to those who are not trusting in Christ and have been granted faith by the Holy Spirit to suffer for his namesake and to endure. Remember that faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. To those who aren't given that gift, this is hard and this is sheer lunacy. Finding joy in suffering. Now, why do we keep on rejoicing? Why why do we... Why, do, why does Peter instruct us to not allow our suffering to stop or even hinder our joy? Why does he tell us to keep on rejoicing? Well, he gives us an incentive. He says, he continues, so that at the revelation of his glory, verse 13, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And that word exultation, that, that is an emphatic way to say rejoice. It is, you are rejoicing jubilantly. You are rejoicing ecstatically. You are, you know that, that phrase, dance like nobody's watching? You will be rejoicing like nobody's watching. Well, why, why do we do that? Why, or why, rather, why will we do that? Well, let's, let's concur that suffering refines our faith and it shows us what we really believe in. Genuine, for the genuine Christian who, when, when they are really in the thick of it, when they're, when they're in this furnace, when they're in this fiery ordeal and the heat is on, and by the world's standards, it is time to throw in the towel and call it quits. The true believer of Jesus Christ who is looking to him and he is trusting in Jesus to hold him, to shepherd him, and ultimately to rescue, save, and vindicate him as he is longing and looking forward in great anticipation to the Lord's return for them, for for me, and for you. When that day finally comes, Church, when that day finally comes and you finally appropriate it, when you, it, to use the, as it were, to, to put your hands on Jesus, when you get to hold Jesus, when you get your hands on heaven, it will be all the more glorious for you the more you have been longing for it here. The more precious it is to you here, the more, the more you are suffering for it here, the more glorious it will be for you in that day. And I think it's so, it's, it's so uh, timely that right now the Winter Olympics are going on. Now, the, 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 the Winter Olympics just amaze me because that's a time when people who have absolutely no knowledge of sports, all of a sudden they're getting sportsy and they, they get excited. But the, in the Olympics, we have athletes and, you know, and Paul refers to this illustration in 1 Corinthians 9.25 that, that everyone who competes in the games, they're exercising self-control. That, that's, a, that's a very nice way of saying that they are going through the ringer to condition themselves and to compete. 
and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, Christians, an imperishable wreath. And that image of an athlete training and training and training and making sacrifice after sacrifice and, and, and going through blood, sweat, and tears and pain and suffering and ordeal. The more, he had, the more obstacles, the more hurdles he had to do to get that wreath. For that athlete, the more glorious that wreath will be, right? It's the same principle for you and I as we suffer and as we wait for Christ. The more we long and desire him now and the more we are willing to endure suffering now, the greater the glory will be for us in that day. Peter adds, he says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And when people speak evil against you because you associate with Jesus Christ, faithfully enduring it affirms that the believer has the spirit of God resting on him. And this is, this is Peter reminding Christians. This is Peter reminding me. And this is Peter reminding you, the suffering saint, that you aren't suffering because God is mad at you. If you're suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, you are precisely where God wants you to be. Some of you need to hear that. There are times I need to hear that. If you're suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, you are precisely where God wants you to be. And the good news for the Christian is that in your suffering, in your fiery ordeal, whatever it is, God is with you. He is with you in spirit. Peter says right here that the spirit of glory and of God is resting on the saints. And furthermore, God is also standing with you through your fellow brothers and sisters. That's one of the reasons why it is so good to have a high view of the church. And the, good, and the rest of the good news is that, is, is that that is your comfort until the day that you no longer have any fiery ordeals. Let me, let me backtrack just a second. That is a comfort to you because that is the truth for you in every ordeal until the day that you have no ordeals. There. Now I said all I wanted to say. And so as you suffer, remember that this is a means to refine your faith. This is a mean, suffering is a means to hone your desire for Christ and for his return. And it's also a means to invest in your heavenly reward. So don't just expect suffering. Find joy in it. Exult in it. Third, we, we get to verse 15. Peter tells us to evaluate our suffering. Evaluate your suffering. He says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. And he's repeating something he's already said way back in chapter 2. There he said that there's suffering that you get because you've done something to deserve it. In in 2.20 he says, there's no, he's asking it, uh, he's posing it in this rhetorical question, but he's saying, 
there is no credit to you if you sin and then endure it. What does he say there is credit for? What does he say that there is that, that God finds commendable is when you do what is right and you're still lucky enough to be persecuted for it and you do it patiently. That's what is commendable to God. That is what, as he says, finds favor with God. And so being treated harshly for your own sin, back in chapter 2, is parallel to suffering as a murderer or as a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. Peter says, don't, don't do that. If you, are, if, if you are doing any of these things, stop it. Now, we know what, we know what a murderer is. That's someone who takes a life. We know what a thief is. It's someone who takes things. And then an evildoer, this is kind of a, this is a pretty generic term that covers anything that the first two miss. But I want to draw your attention to this last word, a troublesome meddler. It's an interesting word because it's the only place in the New Testament that this word appears. And it, it, it roughly has the idea of, of uh, being a busybody, of, of meddling in things not concerning yourself, of getting up in other people's business, especially when you're not needed or when you're not asked for, right? Now, I sincerely... I sincerely doubt that Peter has in his mind anyone, any of these Christians that he's writing to being guilty of the first two, right? I think what he's doing is he's using hyperbole, and he, and he mentions, he starts off with this list of sins, of sins that no Christian would do. No Christian w- would ever want to be caught doing these things. And then he's working his way towards some sins that perhaps even the best of us at times can be guilty of doing. And so Peter says, if you're doing any of these things, stop. Don't be, don't be guilty of that. And I'm sure that what's in Peter's mind is the image of the zealots. We've, we've talked about them before. Do you remember who the zealots were? They were uh, one of the political Jewish factions uh, in, the, in the Jewish people in the first century. One of, one of Peter's associates, Simon, the apostle Simon, was a, was a reformed zealot. And ironically, they, had, they, they were guilty of the very things that the Christians were being accused of. They, they did the things that people thought the Christians were doing. They were elitist, arrogant, secretive, antagonistic, anarchistic, rebellious, insurrectionists. And furthermore, they would murder and, and, and steal and lie and do whatever it was necessary to further the cause, further, further the sake of their cause. They would, even, they would gladly give up their own lives if need be for the sake of their um, hyper-patriotism. And so Peter says, evaluate your suffering. If you're, if you're going to suffer, make sure it's not because you've done something evil. Make sure it's, it's not because you have a reputation of, for meddling in the affairs of others, for being involved where you are not welcome or wanted or needed. Don't suffer because you are known for being a, a, a rebel rouser 
or a troublemaker or a ne'er-do-well. Don't suffer because you are known for being disruptive to your society or to your community or to your neighbors. Suffer because you claim the name of Christ and, that, and, and for trying to live like a Bible-believing Christian. That's what Peter's saying. Evaluate your suffering. Make sure you're suffering for the right reason. He says, he continues in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian... Just as a side note, we use that term Christian gladly, right? We identify as Christians. Do you know that the, that the label Christian was actually meant as an insult? Do you know who, who, who came up with the name Christian? Unbelievers. And it was, it was meant to associate these believers of Christ, these brothers, these followers of the way, these disciples of, of Jesus, it, meant, it was meant to associate them with shame. And Peter says, no, no, no. If you suffer as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, Again, rhetorically, he asks, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if it is with great difficulty that the righteous are saved, again, rhetorically, the answer is implied, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Again, this is timely because yesterday morning uh, the, the men gathered to discuss the topic of the final judgment, and there is so much here that could be said. But allow me to say this succinctly. We concur. I think what what Peter is getting at here is we, we can concur, we can agree that God allows and brings suffering on his people for their good, right? Right? Okay. And that he uses suffering to strengthen, to sanctify, to purify, to refine his people, right? And that suffering which he uses for good can be very, very painful. And were it not for the, for the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, and if it wasn't for the faith to endure that suffering that is given to us as a gift by the Holy Spirit, if it wasn't for that, and if it wasn't for the presence of God in our lives, and if it wasn't for the presence of his church in our lives to to uphold and support us, if it wasn't for those things, I'm sure we would be driven to despair in our suffering, right? Okay. I think what Peter is saying is, if the suffering which is designed for our good for our refining is severe as it is. How severe will the suffering be for those who have God's wrath thrown on them? If the suffering that God puts us through as those whom he loves is as hard as it is, how severe, how terrifying will the suffering be for those who are not in Jesus Christ. That's a that's a deep one. I think Peter's point is that it's better to suffer as a Christian now, to take your licks as it were, be willing to endure whatever it is 
be, be like the man who found the pearl at great price, sell, sold everything that he had to get that pearl. Jesus Christ is the pearl. And if it means taking your licks now, it's worth it. Because it's, it's nothing in comparison to those who, who don't have the pearl. So when you suffer, expect it. Don't be surprised by it. And when you suffer, exult in it. Keep on rejoicing in it. When you suffer, make sure you're suffering for the right reason. Examine it. Examine it. And then lastly, we get to verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That word, therefore, it's, it's, it's telling us he, he, he's winding up. He's coming to the climax of his argument. And he, he's been arguing for the, for the fact that God sometimes wills for Christians to suffer. And I hope that by this point, none of you are surprised by that. Sometimes God wills for you to suffer. As we've seen, and as has been my intention to convince you, is that when you are suffering in the will of God, it's a good place for you to be. It affirms your calling in Christ as you follow him into suffering. It refines your faith. It enlarges and and intensifies your reward in heaven. It purifies you. It glorifies God. God, it builds your character, it builds your endurance, it grants you the means and the capacity and the understanding and the wisdom to comfort and sympathize with others who are suffering. It brings you closer to Christ as you partake, as you join in the fellowship of his sufferings. It affirms that the Holy Spirit is resting upon you. It affirms that you are blessed and protected of God. And you know what? Another thing there, there are many things that suffering does, but the last that I want to say is that it demonstrates the irrevocability of God's love. What do I mean by that? I mean that the more you suffer as a Christian demonstrates the more... Let me put it this way. The more you suffer, the more you learn that the world can throw all this stuff at you. Think back to, think back to Romans 8. 35 to 39. The world can throw all this stuff at you, and it will never revoke, it will never mitigate, it will never take away, lessen, hamper, hinder, or undo the love of God that He has for you. So, seeing that it is good to suffer according to the will of God, what, what do we do? Peter tells us. He says, entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's, that's faith, folks. That, that is a practical application of faith. And that means that you and I ought to be handling over our woes and our hardships and our sufferings to God and trusting that whatever he does with them is right. Whatever he does with your sufferings is right. If he removes them, 
If he grants you reprieve, praise God, he's done what is right. What if he causes you to remain right where you are? Praise God, he's done what is right. It's fitting. He calls God a faithful creator. And this reminds me that when I am suffering, that the God who created me, that the God who knows my frame, he knows that I am dust, he knows my limitations, he knows precisely as far as I can go, and he knows the point at which I'm going to fail. He knows everything about me, my ways, my weaknesses. He knows my heart infinitely better than I do, infinitely more than I would care to know about me. And that reassures me that if there is anybody worth entrusting the things, the worries, the concerns, the anxieties that keep me up at night, it is my faithful creator. my maker it's the one who made me and it's the one who is faithful so church entrust your sufferings to him he is faithful and he will do what is right let's pray father we we want to praise you for being reminded of how big you are how wise you are, how sovereign you are. Help us to remember that in the midst of our suffering. Lord, give us the faith to entrust ourselves to you. Help us to remember the profession of David that if he goes out into the middle of the sea you're there if he goes up to the highest mountain you're there if he goes to the depths you're there help us to remember that you are always with us I pray Lord for any here who have worries or fears in their hearts in their minds that they, are, that they are wrestling with and they refuse to give them over, Lord. Prompt them to turn to you and trust. We thank you that you have promised to be with us in all things. We thank you that you have set limitations and durations and intensities to our trials. Please be with us, Lord. Amen.